I'm Nareet Ben. This is Life Deconstructed. Intimate, open conversations with inspiring women from all different fields and backgrounds, how they got to where they are, the debates, decisions, and doubts along the way, and what success even means. Adina Sussman has had a pretty intense five years, co-authoring two best-selling books with Chrissy Teigen, getting married and moving to Tel Aviv, and writing her first solo and wildly successful cookbook, Sababa, named a best fall 2019 cookbook by the New York Times, Bon Appetit, and Food and Wine. On the way, she's helped bring vibrant Middle Eastern food to the masses, inspiring people to play outside the lines of strict recipes and rules. But like everyone, finding her lane and success did not come out of nowhere or overnight. We caught up with her while working on her next book about her orthodox upbringing, how almost burning down a famous author's apartment ended up kind of being a blessing in disguise, coming to realize something she loved could be an actual job, and being open to try new things, always. Adina Sussman, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited to talk to you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It seems like you have had a pretty crazy few years, getting married, moving to Israel, the success of Cravings, of course, writing your first solo cookbook, Sababa. Did COVID sort of hit the pause button for you or just sort of morph your work into something else, maybe more personal? Um, if anything, COVID sort of put my work onto overdrive, yeah. actually, you know, until Corona, I had never done a single virtual event. Wow. Um, I had been fortunate to have a actual live book tour, uh, where I visited something like 30 cities for Sababa and met thousands of people in person, shook hands, hugged. What a concept. <laughs> And then came back to Israel in late December of 2019, and then COVID hit a couple of months later. And my whole life changed immediately, like all of us. Um, we went into lockdown pretty quickly. And then also there was just a revival of interest in home cooking. Right. In my book, it's sort of... The famous banana bread phase. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Sourdough, banana bread, kombucha, kimchi, you know. But yeah, people just started cooking from my book in ways that I had never seen before. It, it found new audiences. People were looking for ways to both nourish themselves and distract themselves. And cooking was one of those ways. Sure. And so, yeah, I just I just hit the ground running. I amped up. I bought my Kim Kardashian ring light and uh, my <laughs> microphone. Yeah, I feel like those did really well during yeah. the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, so it was really something. But I mean, yes, definitely life hit a pause button in other really significant ways. I live very close to the beach in Tel Aviv. And for two months during lockdown, we live about three blocks from the beach, but we could hear the ocean waves crashing into the beach as though they were right outside our door because there was no traffic, no driving, no distraction. It was quite amazing. Yeah. Special time. It's interesting that for your work, I think probably unlike a lot of people, it actually, even though it was virtual, it seems like it almost got more personal in a way because you have this connection with millions of people around the world that are just like desperate to create in their own home, you know, using your work. They wanted to create, they wanted to learn, they wanted to feed their families, they wanted a sense of community, cooking is connection. Sure. And whether you're just connecting to someone by reading their book, or if you're sharing a recipe on social media that other people are cooking as well, you know, the melted cabbage from Sababa has been shared something like, I don't know, 20,000 times or 30,000 times. And yes, and I have made it big success. <laughs> 
so yeah, it's been a very interesting time and it continues to be as we go in and out of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and then seeing the tunnel close up again. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll get to all of that certainly in Sababa and the, I think 14 cookbooks that you've co-written, but let's go all the way back to the beginning. You grew up in an Orthodox family, I believe. I did. I mean, that's a community obviously that can be its own sort of bubble. What was that like? So I grew up in an Orthodox community, but I grew up in Palo Alto, California, where it wasn't by any means a Jewish neighborhood. You know, we were one of few Jewish families on our block. And I went to a Jewish school, but there was only one. And, you know, there was definitely not any kind of a feeling of living in any sort of a ghetto or like an enclosed kind of a a community. But yes, our home was was an island of, of religious life and Shabbat, you know, being very much central to our life and our community life. And yeah, we were observing rituals that almost nobody else was, including most of our friends. So we would walk to synagogue on Saturday. And then people would, on Sunday, friends from the neighborhood, or when I was in high school and public school, they would say, "Uh, dude, we saw your family uh, walking down El Camino Real all dressed up. Did your car break down? (laughs) Like the, (laughs) the idea that we had chosen to walk, especially in California, was a really novel one. Right. The land of driving. Yeah. So I always... Was that like a sense of otherness in any way? I grew up also, I mean, I grew up in a place where there was not so many Jews, uh, not so many Israelis like my parents are, but I didn't grow up in an Orthodox family, but I definitely got a lot of questions and strange (laughs) things like that a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, I've always viewed myself as a bit of an outsider, no matter what environment I'm in. And I think it definitely started with my upbringing. You know, we were weirdos, for sure, but in a a good way, you know, people were always interested in what we were doing. And our house was very open to others. And, you know, our table was open. I bet your house was the one with the best food that for sure, American friends wanted to come to. For sure. It was a small community, you know, Stanford University was also a big part of our life. And anyone who came for a sabbatical ended up at our Sabbath table or any guests from out of town who needed kosher food. So, you know, anyone from Pulitzer Prize winners to basically homeless people ended up at our Shabbat table and it was beautiful. And I learned a lot about keeping an open home and focusing on what's important, which is hosting people and and sharing warmth with them. And, you know, I think a lot of how I cook and entertain stemmed from, you know, what I learned from my mother and, and my father as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Food is naturally a huge part of that kind of upbringing in a, in a religious family, but it sounds like even more so with you guys in terms of letting people in and hosting people and having food be a sort of centerpiece. Did that ever strike you at the time as something that existed beyond family life and Shabbat, like something you could actually do in life as a career? At the time, no. I mean, I think what I was more focused on and sort of enamored by was the sort of salon environment at our table. There were just so many interesting people around and so many varying viewpoints and political points of view and intellectual points of view, socioeconomic differences. My mother had a rule that, you know, anyone was invited to the table, but you had to contribute to the conversation. So that sounds very familiar. I really I love that. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, I think that I took that away from that time. And a lot of times when I entertain now, I find that I'm not doing a lot of talking. And my mother didn't as well. Like I always think she felt like it was her job to grease the wheels of this beautiful table, whether it was through the food or or through the mix of people or through making sure everyone's glasses were filled, not in a sort of, you know, butler on the left side, kind of a formal way, but just giving everyone the, the space to have that great conversation and atmosphere and feel comfortable. Yeah. So the cooking itself, I mean, I definitely was 
was engaged in cooking from a young age. My sister and I were both recruited by our mom to help her. She worked, so she would often call us from work and ask us to get things going for her, take things out of the freezer. She taught us how to make several desserts by phone, um, lots of tips and tricks of cooking. Uh, I learned, like, for instance, making meringue cookies. We didn't have parchment paper, but we cut grocery bags, and the grocery bag cut into a large rectangle fit exactly onto a sheet pan. Huh. <laughs> that was the parchment paper in our home. The best things come when you have to get creative. For sure. Yeah. Um, and I have my mother's New York Times cookbook. And, you know, the pages that I cooked from even as a kid are stained with chocolate frosting or butter or oil or who knows what. And I treasure that book and still leap through the pages often. So it was, food was definitely always a large influence in my life. Also, writing was equally a um, pull that drew me equally. So those two. Yeah. When did that start? I wonder. So you went to Boston University, right? Mm-hmm. For communications. Was it writing in your mind then? Or I mean, did you have any idea what you wanted to be when you grow up, so to speak, at that point? <laughs> I started out as a journalism major. I had been, you know, I found uh, third grade typewritten uh, newsletters that I wrote. Like I created a school newspaper on my mother's typewriter. So I was always interested in news and what was going on. But yeah, at BU, I thought I would be a journalism major. And then I quickly realized that you could learn about journalism by working. So I changed my major to probably better even too. Yeah. So I interned at a bunch of different publications in the Boston area. And my junior year in college, I interned at a fashion magazine in London. And then in my senior year, I went to work in New York at a news magazine show for a while. But I, I changed my major my freshman year to a more general communications major. So I could study a broader um, scope of, of things that interested me, including political communications and also religion because I was fortunate enough to get into Ellie Wiesel's class series. And once you got into one class, you could take them all. So I took five. (laughs) So I ended up with a religion minor. (laughs) Wow. I bet that had some moments that stuck with you. Oh, yeah. I mean, in light of what's going on right now with humanitarian crises around the world, you know, the Bosnia crisis was going on at the time and being in the classroom with someone who was so intimately involved and obviously impacted and it brought up so many memories for him. Um, And having that experience just really drove home the human aspect of of things that can often feel very distant from us. So yeah, that was interesting. That's amazing. You had a university experience that gave you that because I think for me, I was at NYU and I think I learned much more out of classes Mm -hmm. and also in internships and stuff like that than inside. So to have a teacher, a professor, a class or something that impacts you long term, I think is really special. Yeah. Did that period when you're sort of dabbling in all kinds of things, how did that kind of help inform things you like or even the process of elimination, like figuring out, okay, this is definitely not what I want to do, or this is definitely not my lane? I think I knew pretty early on that I didn't want to be like a hard news journalist. I was always interested in culture. And, you know, it took me a while to realize that food could be considered a cultural study. And, you know, remember, we're talking about being in college in the late 1980s. I'm 50 years old. And culinary school was what kids who couldn't get into college did back then. You know, it was like considered Hmm. vocational school. (laughs) Do you remember ever thinking about culinary school and just thinking that's not like a serious option? I thought about it very briefly in high school. And um, I remember I mentioned it to my grandmother and she said, nice Jewish girls who are honor students don't go to cooking school. You have to go to college. (laughs) And also you're kosher. As if it's some kind of downgrade. Well, at the time, I think, you know, striving children of immigrants, college was the brass ring at the time. You know, now going to culinary school. Did you also have like a specific job or something that was considered like this is what you should be doing? This is the good enough Um, bar? No, I would say in that respect, my parents 
gave us a lot of latitude. I was quite free spirited and I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I moved to Israel actually a month after graduation because I had close friends from my youth movement who had moved to Israel and I was looking for a good time and an adventure. Yeah. Uh, and I did not have a job when I moved. Something I've done several times in my life is relocated without an actual job. Had a lot of faith. I'm a huge fan of picking up and changing your life and moving. I've done it a few times as well. And I really think, I think it's so incredible, even going without a parachute, so to speak. It's the kind yeah. of experience that you're bound to get something from, even if ultimately you decide it's not the right place for you or, you know, whatever. For sure. I mean, for me, it was all good. I mean, I got to Israel, I was 21 years old. Within a year of getting there, two major peace agreements were signed with, you know, the Palestinians and the Jordanians. People were traveling all over the Middle East. It was a very exciting, promising time. I got a job working in a TV station. I did program acquisitions and production management. I traveled a lot. What was that like? Did you enjoy the TV work or was it like a Um, kind of way to pass the time? I liked it. I knew that it was just another step into something else that I would end up doing. Um, I liked my boss and I felt really fortunate to be working in an exciting environment. And I was writing on the side a little bit for the Jerusalem Post, freelancing and things like that. But I liked it. I didn't love it. And, you know, life in Israel changed a lot after Rabin was assassinated in 1995. It was a hard time, a sad time. And ultimately, I decided to move back to New York because I was becoming increasingly interested in food and food media. And it was really the burgeoning days of all of that. You know, the Food Network had just gone up on the air. Oh, wow. The internet was two years old. <laughs> it's hard to imagine, you know, these kind of things at this point. Yeah. Well, I mean, hey, I remember, you know, I'm younger and I still remember the concept of, you know, email and like, what? what's an email? That's funny. Like, it's <laughs> crazy, 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 yeah. crazy what's happened in just our lifetime. But but anyway, yes. Yeah, so New York, I actually saw somewhere you describing, you know, saying that New York made you. Yeah. And I really love that because it resonates with my own experience with New York. And I think probably a lot of other who spent formative time there, however it is. I know you lived in the city for a long time. So when you go there, you sort of, I guess, starting to put the pieces together of maybe food and writing can be a real thing. Yeah, I was 25 years old. I also had recently stopped being kosher. Mm. And, you know, the world opened up to me as I realized I wanted to taste everything and explore the world and discover the world on the plate. You know, I started becoming a real fan of cookbooks and restaurants. And within three years, I was was basically working in food and I had a lot of luck and a lot of, I worked hard. I hustled. I networked a lot. I asked people for opportunities. I wrote little capsule reviews for Time Out New York. I had a temp job at Pfizer Corporation. I was just doing admin work for really good pay during a strong job market. And my boss didn't have a lot of work for me. And we really got along because I played basketball as did his daughter. So he sort of supported me in my freelance pursuits as I did some of his admin and work. So I did a lot of stuff during the year that I was there. And then I got really lucky and got a job at Gourmet Magazine as a copywriter on the marketing side of the magazine. That really was, you know, just hitting the gold mine at the time. You know, print magazine publishing was in its heyday when I started working there. Ruth Reichel was the editor in chief. It was so prestigious. And magazines had money to really invest in pieces. So much money. The opposite of now, basically. Yeah. Both editorially and advertising wise, I was writing these 
incredible 16-page sections about some Spanish wines. I got to go to Italy wow. for Barilla Pasta. I traveled a lot for work. I did a lot of interesting things. And most- A 16-page spread about wines. That is the dream job. <laughs> it was. You know, it was a dream job. I mean, I had no idea how magazines worked and how they made money and how publishing worked. And after I left there, I kind of understood the division between what they called church and state and magazines, right. which is sort of the editorial side and the marketing side. And I was on the marketing side, but really, really, really wanted to be on the other side. And I was really wary about whether that was going to be possible. And I just made some friends on the editorial side of the magazine who saw my passion for food. And eventually Ruth Reichel gave me an assignment uh, writing about Yemenite Jewish food on one of my trips to Israel. Ooh. Yeah. And that was one of my first major assignments. And it really kind of was a springboard for me after I left the magazine and went to culinary school. And I left Gourmet in 2004, long before it closed. It closed in 2008. And I was done with culinary school by the end of 2005. And I've been freelancing for... 16 years now working by myself. Wow. First of all, I find it interesting that switch. I don't know how difficult or or easy it was for you at that point to leave kosher food behind, which is obviously such a big part of how you grew up. And then it sounds like you just sort of hit the ground running and all these different things, these worlds opening up for you. And New York was amazing. It was still relatively affordable (laughs) compared to now. I had a cheap-ish studio apartment. I worked a lot. I was so enamored of the food scene in New York and all the restaurants and just I had an amazing time in New York the whole time I lived there. But I would say the first five years were such a time of discovery, personal discovery, learning about myself, understanding who I was, figuring out what I wanted to do. And just, I felt so lucky to be there at that time. It was a really incredible time. Yeah, it's such a testament to the importance of, for whoever is lucky enough to be able to do that, to just launch yourself into discovery or something, to just try everything and give yourself to the jobs that you're doing, even if they don't feel like, okay, this is not my dream job, but they all teach you a little piece of something of what you might want to do later. And they all end up useful, even if they seem like not at all interesting at the time. Yes, that was definitely my experience. When I left Colin, school. Um, Unfortunately, my mother passed away. So I moved to the Bay Area for about six months to spend time with her. And then eventually my father, after my mother passed away, I taught my father how to cook, which was a very meaningful (laughs) exercise. Um, He's a great cook. And then I moved to New York and I started developing recipes for Ellie Krieger, who had a healthy cooking show on the Food Network at the time and who was a big star. Her books were New York Times bestsellers and she lived in my neighborhood and um, we just hit it off. I think so a lot did you of, meet her by chance? How did you get that first kind of big break into that world? Um, a friend had interned with her at CNN in college and this was 15 years later, but the friend had seen that she was looking for someone to help her. And I just called her like Like, me, 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 me. (laughs) A lot of what I accomplished was through being friendly, being open, being curious, being willing, uh, being humble, being in a place of learning. You know, I really started freelancing at the age of basically 35, which is quite advanced for someone in the food world now. I mean, kids get out of high school and start creating social media accounts. And so I knew that I needed to put the pedal to the metal and kind of start working as much as I could. And Ellie gave me an incredible opportunity. Up until that point, though, yeah. just to pause on that whole road there, Mm -hmm. it sounds like you also had a lot of good mentors along the way, like really important, the stuff you're saying in terms of being humble, of not saying, 
you know, I'm too big to do this or to try that in various jobs or whatever it is or assignments, just, you know, being willing to learn is such a huge thing that I think you're right these days where it's just like you're supposed to automatically do it on Instagram or whatever it is. <laughs> Most people like skip all of those steps. Yeah. And I think a lot is lost on the way. I mean, are there other kind of key things or key people that you feel like helped steer you or maybe give you the confidence to say, yes, culinary school is an option or yes, this is my path? Sure. I mean, first of all, I would say that having parents who were open to a moving target of a career and an idea of what what would make their daughter happy was was a huge gift. And then the person who hired me at Gourmet, Jane Grenier, who's still a, a dear friend of mine, she really took a chance on me. I didn't have any marketing copywriting experience. I got to the job because when I was temping, I also temped at a media research company. I ended up being an account executive for one year. And I sold media research services to Condé Nast, which was a client of the company. Mm. And I sort of sheepishly asked someone in the research department if they knew of any jobs. And as it turned out, the one person who had a writing job in the marketing department was going to business school. So I got an interview and I met this incredible, vibrant, sparkling, brilliant woman, Jane, who I just fell in love with immediately. And she gave me a writing test and told me that I wasn't going to be making a lot of money at the beginning if I got the job. And I said, I didn't care. And we had in a great time for those three years together. It was just a wonderful experience. And she is someone who I'm still in touch with to this day. She came to my wedding in Israel four years ago. And just her incredible generosity. And also she was a great critic. She was a tight editor. She, I think being a little older, I was really open to taking criticism and I wanted to learn quickly. I think now with younger generations are a little more sensitive about taking criticism. Yeah. And it's so important to just a little is like maybe kind of an understatement. But yeah. <laughs> it's so important to listen to the people who are in front of you and willing to give you incredible advice as long as you're willing to take it. Um, and Jane was one of those people and just you know, my, my general rule about work has been to treat everyone the same from the CEO to the secretary, like just come at them with sincerity and a place of learning and kindness. And, you know, that's always worked really well for me. In some instances, people have thought that I was presumptuously comfortable around powerful people, but that's just Mm -hmm. the way that I am. I'm just treat everyone the same. It's a disarming quality. It's unintentionally disarming. It's just the way that I am and the way that I am with people. And it has helped me in my career. It's something I didn't really, wasn't able to quantify until later. And then I kind of realized that that's a character trait that I possess. Yeah. I love those kinds of reflections because a lot of times, like you say, something can, you know, when it's happening, you don't really realize what it is, whether it's advice you're getting from someone or like you're saying, like an actual character trait that only a little bit later do you realize the things that are really helping you or maybe hurting you. And I think with that, approach that's so great, not just because it obviously gives you better relationships with everyone across the board, but you just never know who you're going to learn from or who, you know, will end up being a significant person in your life in one way or another or leading you to the next thing, whatever it could be. Like it could be just as much the assistant as it could be the CEO sometimes. And it sounds like that kind of happened a lot of times for you. For sure. It happened a lot. And, you know, I had other mentors. I mean, some of them weren't even aware that they were my mentors. Yeah. As I was figuring out what I wanted to do in the culinary 
culinary world, I really was zeroing in on cookbooks. I've always loved cookbooks. I realized that I was reading cookbooks like novels. That's what was sitting on my bedside table. That was what was bookmarked and post-it noted. So before you were reading them like novels, but you didn't think necessarily like, oh, you know, was there like a light bulb moment that I love this so much and I could actually do it myself? Well, once I started seeing this woman's name, Melissa Clark, on all the cookbooks that I loved, I was like, who is this woman? And why is her name on every single book that I'm reading? And that's when the idea of cookbook co-authoring, sort of a light bulb went off for me that that was a job. And I was like, I, I think I could do that job. I know how to cook. I know how to write. And I like people. I love collaborating. I love supporting other people. I love seeing other people shine. My ego is pretty firmly in check a lot of the time. I definitely have an ego, but you know, I like to succeed. But yeah. I was like, oh, I think this cookbook authoring thing could be cool. And I didn't feel quite ready yet. I was maybe 35, 36, and I hadn't had that many years under my belt. But about three years later, again, another just stroke of good fortune combined with my own initiative. You know, I I decided in that time that I was freelancing that I was going to try a million different things. And one of the things was food styling, assisting. One of them was catering. Some of them was private chefing. I was still doing some marketing, copywriting. I was doing journalism. And I started food styling, assisting on cookbooks with a wonderful food stylist named Lori Powell, who is was another great mentor of mine. And she took me as her assistant for a book uh, about the South Beach Food and Wine Festival's 10th anniversary with all these celebrity chef recipes and the, the empresario of the festivals and a guy named Lee Brian Schrager. And we did the shoot at his home. And I had been working as a freelancer for a few years. I was actually the restaurant critic for Manhattan Magazine at the time. And I was only reviewing like Michelin star restaurants. I was doing like a lot of crazy things. Oh, sounds really tough. God, <laughs> I was do doing that? a lot of different things, you know, <laughs> some very glamorous yeah. and some very, very prosaic all over. So I was just in the corner, you know, chopping carrots every day, just keeping a low profile. And people kept coming into the shoot to visit Lee, like, and people knew me and he was kind of right. curious, like, how does everyone know the food styling assistant? Like, who is this woman? <laughs> and so we kind of started chatting. Well, that's exactly another piece of proof of how important it is to have kind of like opened up to everyone you met and tried all these different things. Cause then yeah, just yeah, ends up you know, connecting the dots. I also almost burnt down his apartment. Apartment. I was toasting marshmallows and I remember he tweeted about it and put my name in it and I was so embarrassed, but he, I tried to have a good sense of humor about it. And it turned out that two years later, he got a two book contract with Clarkson Potter, which is an imprint of Random House. And someone put my name up for the job because I at that point had co-authored a couple of cookbooks and he remembered me as the food styling assistant. Amazing. And we hit it off. As the, the woman chopping carrots in the corner. Who almost burnt down his apartment. Yeah. And he <laughs> so he took me as his co-author and we wrote two books together and are still very good friends. And, you know, all roads lead to other roads. So, you know, that job where I was working 15, 16 hours a day and maybe making $150 a day led to much more exciting and interesting things. Yeah. And I found an agent who took a chance on me as well. And I started co-authoring books only 2011, which is hard to believe just 10 years ago. But I love that because you're kind of steering yourself in and out of the bounds of this lane that is exactly your space. Yeah. And also the idea that you don't have to be like 25 or 30 or whatever to find the exact thing that is like, ah, oh, this is the place where I feel right, which is I think what everybody's looking for ultimately is just that place where, okay, this is my space. Yeah. Once I started co-authoring books, I was like, 
This is it for me. I love this. I'm going to do this for a long time. This is so interesting. I get to do one or two projects a year. There's this incredible story arc. I get to learn about someone's cooking. I get to cook. I get to write. I get to absorb. You know, my mom actually switched careers at age 47 and became a successful real estate agent in Palo Alto. And she was a teacher of English as a second language and always loved real estate. So I had this example of someone who just sought out her passion and made a career out of it. And so close to the age of 40, I started writing books and it just kind of... Also, just on on the cookbook note, just as a reflection for other people and for myself, how you loved cookbooks and it was a thing that you loved on the side and didn't totally click is like, this is actually something that could be my job. Mm -hmm. Just to notice those things, you know, notice what it is that we love that has nothing to do with work or, you know, even not a hobby, but just things that we enjoy on the side and then kind of stepping out from that, getting some perspective on if that can actually be a thing. Because I think a lot of the time, most people will have the stuff that they like to do on the side, but it doesn't actually, you know, either occur to them or they don't think of it seriously enough. Like this could actually be my life in one way or another. But that's like the best way to lead yourself to work that you love. Yeah, you know, when I started doing it, I hoped I would be good at it. I hoped it would go well. And on my first book, honestly, I got a job co-authoring a book with a couple who had a very successful heirloom seed company. And I waited two months to start because I kept waiting for someone to tell me what to do. And then I realized that no one was going to tell me what to do and I just had to do it. And like, that's just also such a great lesson in work in general is just start, just do everything in beta and like figure things out as you go. Especially if you don't know, no one's going to give you a roadmap. No one's going to, you know, lay out the paint by numbers for you. You just have to do it. You have to figure it out. You're going to mess up. You're going to make mistakes going to be awkward sometimes but like I remember just after a month or two just being like you know the editor was a little absent worked at an imprint that was going through a lot of changes and I was expecting a lot more hand-holding and I never got it and it was actually a, the first book was a great experience because I did it without a lot of hand-holding somehow it happened it came out <laughs> yeah and don't wait until something is perfect or the perfect timing to start no because it really never is never my mother always said in cooking as in life there are no mistakes only happy accidents that reminds me actually of the whole vibe of Sababa, which we'll get to in a moment. (laughs) Everything is connected then in one way or another. Before that, though, obviously, I guess your now best known collaboration of all these, I think, is it 14 now Mm -hmm. cookbooks you've co-authored is with Chrissy Teigen, Cravings, the first and second. How did that collaboration begin? So the third one is coming out October 12th. Uh, We did it last fall in LA in a COVID lockdown bubble. (laughs) Which is probably the best place to create a cookbook. No, when you literally cannot go outside. (laughs) Yeah, um, we... In 2014, much earlier when I was trying to write cookbooks, before I even had an agent, I knew a woman who was a a literary agent at William Morris. And there was a restaurant that I used to frequent a lot uh, on the Lower East Side called Beauty in Essex. And I knew that the chef wanted to write a book. So I kept trying to make it happen for myself and it just didn't happen. And it wasn't the right thing at the time. But four years later, when I had already written a few books, including I had co-authored Candace Nelson of Sprinkles Cupcakes, uh, New York Times bestselling Sprinkles Cupcakes baking cookbook. And we became dear friends. She's wonderful. And she was also represented by WME. And this same woman who I had 
groveled to four or five years before asking to be considered sort of said, Oh, Dina, like she wrote Candace's book and went, wow, I really liked the proposal. I liked everything. So she just put me up. So the groveling was all <laughs> worth it. Yeah. I wasn't sure if she actually remembered me. And then later I asked her and she said, of course I remembered you, but um, she just put me up for the job with a bunch of other writers. I didn't get any preferential treatment. Chrissy and John were in New York for Thanksgiving weekend in 2014. And they asked me to meet them at the Bowery Hotel at 6 p.m. on Saturday night of Thanksgiving weekend. And I said, sure. And then it became 8 p.m. And I said, sure. And then it became 10 p.m. And I said, no problem. (laughs) And so I, I remember asking the assistant, like, well, can I have a phone number in case like I need to reach them? And no, no, don't worry, they'll be there. So I walked into the Bowery Hotel, had no idea where to find them or who I was looking for. And there was just this huge bouncer standing at the front door. And I just looked at him and I looked up and I'm five feet 10. And he was a good foot taller than me. And I looked up at him and I said, Chrissy and John. And he just said, right this way. And he just like took me to them. I was kind of dorky. I brought Chrissy a homemade cake that I had baked and just handed it to her. And like, I was like, this is either like a really smart move or like the dumbest thing you've ever done. And yeah, we just, I guess smart in retrospect, you know, it's just homey, like all people. Well, it's you. It sounds like it's authentically who you are, which is probably the best and only thing you can do. That's just me. And all people are at their heart, like want a homemade cake. Like I would love to receive a homemade cake from someone. So I brought her a cake and we just started talking. We hit it off and, you know, she was 15 years younger than me. Obviously this beautiful, very sharp, smart supermodel married to a huge pop star, but we had so much in common. We had a really similar sense of humor and also cooking philosophy. Like we both grew up in homes where garlic powder, tuna casserole, very basic middle of the week cooking. And we just, we really bonded over that stuff. And I didn't hear for a while, but then I eventually was told that I had been chosen to write the book. In March, John had just won an Oscar for his song that he wrote for Glory. And we were all meeting at their apartment down in Soho and we were passing around the Oscar and I was holding the Oscar. Carefully, I imagine. (laughs) It was really heavy. And Chrissy goes, okay, we're all ready to start. We're really excited. There's just one thing. And I said, "Uh, okay. And she's like, we want you to come to LA and move in with us. And like, there was just this like pregnant pause and like everyone was looking at me like, what is she going to say? And I was like, okay, sure. (laughs) Because, you know, I had recently started dating my boyfriend, who now husband Jay, who lives in Israel. I was back and forth a lot and very open to trying new things. And I love California. I grew up there. I have a lot of friends in LA. And Going back to your roots in a way. Yeah. So I went to LA and moved in with them for the better part of three months. And we banged out the book and cooked. Well, so tell me about the banging out the book part. How does that collaboration work when you're coming from different food cultures, even though, like you were saying, you have similar mainstays in common? Yeah. You know, every book is different, but Chrissy's books are the most immersive. And that's an understatement. (laughs) You know, we basically move in together, I move into their home, and we cook day and night, and we spitball ideas, you know, she'll be sitting on the couch watching Real Housewives, and she'll say, hey, don't you think the flavors of this XYZ Taco Bell sandwich would be like amazing in mac and cheese? And I'd be like, let's try it. And then we would just order stuff and try it. But then it would also be like, I would tell her about my mother's matzo ball soup. And she would be like, I really want to try that. Let's make that, you know, we would just riff and cook and cook and cook. And we would put down certain pillars for types of things we wanted to make. Like we would focus on vegetables for a couple of weeks here and there. Yeah, I was going to ask if you set out with a sort of specific atmosphere or direction, or it's just really kind of feeling it out until you feel you what's know, right. 
Each book is different. The first book, Chrissy was just kind of young and carefree and the book reflected that. In the second book, she had had Luna and was having postpartum depression and the book had a little bit of a different vibe. And then the third book, while we were writing, she had recently experienced a miscarriage. And so there was a lot of comfort cooking and a lot of just time spent together, you know, and my job is... That's kind of beautiful, sort of imbued in the recipes and in the book is the life experience, which is so much what cooking and food is about in the first place. Oh, yeah. I mean, this book really reflects a place and time in her life and even in my life because I'm become a part of her life. And it was COVID and I was there, you know, I was there (laughs) and part of everything that was going on. And that's a great privilege, honestly. And, you know, to have people welcome you into their home with no veneers and no curtains is something that is rare under any circumstances and especially with people as well known as they are and so we have a very special relationship and I think it reflects in the books and I think this book that's coming out in a month and a half is the best one yet and um yeah we'll have to see what happens i feel like that really ties in it just reminds me of your earlier description of your family just how food was a space where you can come in and eat with us but you have to be open and you have to contribute to what we're talking about and yeah that whole atmosphere sounds like you found it again in this totally different form later in your own life yeah i mean i think co-authoring books or just in general what i do Everything is about being in a kitchen with someone and most kitchens are tight spaces. And, you know, in the house that I grew up with, we had divorced moms with two kids sleeping on our couch for a month at a time. We always had people over for Shabbat. There was not a lot of physical, personal space. And so I became very comfortable with being around people, but also developing my own techniques for like having my own space. And so that's something that I think has served me well, being able to take space either physically or otherwise, like when I need it, Mm -hmm. when you're in close quarters with people. Right. Which is also good with COVID in particular. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Just on the note of inspiration, nobody is creative or, you know, feeling inspired 100% of the time. And especially when you're going through different ups and downs, do you have a trick or a way that you create the environment where you can be creative or inspired? Or is it just something that happens naturally as you go? I mean, when you're writing a book, like I'm working on the follow-up to Sababa and it's a very fine line because I try actually not to look at too much other media and other recipes while I'm working on a book because I want things to be very original and just very right, much... Right, so it doesn't seep into your brain. Which is a little bit, I mean, let's face it, like there's nothing new under the sun. It's very rare. Yeah, you can say that for everything really. Yeah, but on the other hand, I try to keep it kind of pure and I use the market and the seasons a lot as my inspiration and... Um, my very practical bent, like the way that I've developed so many recipes that I have a very clear philosophy on like what a recipe should do for the end user and how they should be able to interact with it. So I negate a lot of ideas out of the bat because I think that they're going to be too complicated or present mixed messages to someone or have too many techniques like mixed into one. Like I think I've developed a certain style of recipes that I'm trying to hone without being boring or repetitive. That's what I love about Sababa. And I think it really does reflect Israel cooking in so many ways that it's not about, you know, staying really strict with particular rules and figuring out, wait a minute, exactly how much do I need of this or exactly how much do I need of that? But sort of giving the tools to understand what you're supposed to do overall, but then to play and, you know, feel freedom not to have to check every line of the recipe 10 times to make sure you're doing it right. 
Yeah. You know, my, my publisher made a really wise decision to take out, like I come from a background where like everything I do, I weigh and measure multiple ways and just that I have all the information because, you know, cooking is like computer coding. Basically a recipe is a computer program. If you think of it in that analogy, and each line is like a line of code and you need to have very specifics in your lines of code to have like a perfect program. But they said, you know, one large onion, the kind of food that I make, if the onion is 10 ounces versus eight ounces, it's not going to sink the recipe. And so unless I really need it, I try to keep the recipes loose and let people feel that freedom and that flexibility. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about Sababa. I mean, 2019 first solo cookbook, which obviously became a huge success, (laughs) best-selling, I mean, best fall cookbook picks. What was it like to, after so long of collaboration, just be your own voice, your own name, your own face? Like, that's it. It's just you. Uh, It was terrifying. Um, (laughs) I'm very good at supporting others. And it's a role that I'm very comfortable with. And I also, I'm able to celebrate myself in the process of working with someone like Chrissy. And I get attention. I get accolades. I get praise. So like, it's not like I'm completely invisible, but you know, there's a space you're comfortable in. Yeah, this was completely out of my comfort zone. I was convinced until the night before the book came out that it was just going to tank. I had so many fears about it. I how did you sort of get over that along the way when you're alone with yourself in the kitchen (laughs) or whatever, and having those kinds of doubts, even though you have such an incredible career already under your belt? I mean, I had to step out of my physical body and just be rational and just, you know, every recipe has been tested nine times. I generally approach the world like people want to support you. People want you to succeed. That's what you want for others. And in the weeks before the book came out, things started happening, like Bon Appetit put it on its best fall cookbooks and a bunch of other places. And even then, I was still like had a bit of imposter syndrome. Still doubting yourself? A little bit. I feel like that's encouraging, though. Well, it's definitely relatable that someone in your position after that much experience and career accolades could still be like, am I supposed to be doing this? Oh, for sure. To have that moment. Well, you know, also a new element of writing Sababa was that I had spent more than a decade learning how to write in the voices of others and polish their voices and perfect them. Sure, and writing, that is all about finding your voice. And all of a sudden I had to, and I really struggled at the beginning of writing Sababa. I really focused on the recipes and then I wrote later. When people ask me my advice about cookbooks is like, cook now, write later and write the introduction last. (laughs) Because the introduction is the thing that is everything that you've learned throughout the process. Um, So yeah, so the book came out and it just did something that I am still amazed at. And yeah, what did it feel like when it came out and you saw um, that your own thing and your own voice and all of that was so accepted? Well, it was interesting. You know, another interesting thing about writing the book is that I was writing this book about Israel through the eyes of an American immigrant to Israel, but the book was directed toward American cooks. And I wrote it all in Israel, but I was in New York the day the book came out. And so it was sort of amazing to see. And also I was in full book tour media mode, like doing tons of radio and live appearances and things like that. And once I saw people cooking the food, like when I look at Amazon reviews, if somebody doesn't like my writing, that's subjective. But if someone makes a recipe and it doesn't work, then I have failed them. You know, for the first few weeks, I was looking with like one eye cracked open to see if someone (laughs) would say like, this didn't work. I can see you hold 
holding the laptop like half open, like <laughs> yeah. debating. And I think when Melissa Clark, my idol, said that the recipes were meticulously tested for me, like that was, ah, you know, breathing a sigh of relief. Vindication. Yeah. yeah. And just going on book tour, meeting so many people and really enjoying that so much more than I even imagined I would. I mean, I'm very friendly and I like speaking and I like talking to people and meeting people, but I really enjoyed book tour. And I really, I think also living in Israel, being reimmersed in the United States during that time was like really fun, actually. Yeah. Um, and then I came back to Israel. Yeah, I could probably kind of breathe out. Yeah. Wait, let's talk about Israel for just a moment, yeah. though, because we kind of skipped over that, which was a few years before. Yeah. So you had been visiting your whole life, but 2015, you decide to move. How does that happen? Because that, that's also a huge move to do so, at that point. Yeah. Much bigger than, you know, California, New York, even. You know, I always like to say moving to Israel was a big change, but it wasn't a monumental shift. It wasn't like moving to a country where I didn't speak the language, didn't understand the culture, didn't know what the currency was. You know, I had spent a significant amount of time in Israel and I had met, I met Jay and Chrissy the same month. So that was a pretty big month for me. Wow, that's a good month of your life. <laughs> uh, yeah. And he is divorced and has two grown children and he has a more conventional work situation in Israel and he wanted to stay here. And I had honestly been living in New York for more than 20 years and was open to a change. And I love Tel Aviv and I had always wanted to try living there. So after about a year and three months of being together, we got in a place together in Tel Aviv at the end of 2015. And I was still going back and forth like three months on three months off for a little while. Yeah. But it was pretty great. I mean, I still had my place in New York, I would say that having two homes sounds better than it actually is. And when I sold my apartment in 2019, I was so relieved in New York and just to have my life be focused in one place. <laughs> oh, really? I'm yeah. glad to hear that because most of my life's been divided between New York and Tel Aviv as well. And my dream is always like to have an apartment and a home in both. But yeah. maybe maybe I should reorganize. Maybe again later. But at that point in my life, I just felt like I needed to double down on one place. To and, just be able to settle. And also I got married at 45 for the first time. And like I really wanted to sort of build a home. Yeah. And my apartment in New York started to feel less and less like my home. And I wanted to focus on building my home in Israel. So yeah. we did that. So What we was it like? I mean, did you feel like you had to change your mentality? Did it change your inspiration? Yeah. Israel, like the food itself, is a very vibrant and intense place for better or worse. So it definitely has an effect on people. Um, yeah, like my personality is I'm fairly conflict averse where people zig, I tend to zag. In Israel, there's a term like, you know, be the friar, which is be the person who push over the sucker. Like yeah. I'm no sucker, but like if me playing the sucker is going to get me what I want. I'll apologize until the cows come home. I thank people a lot and I ask a lot of questions Got and it. I sort of do like a Jedi mind trick on people. Like they're confused <laughs> by the niceness and then I just do a little run around yeah, them and totally, get yeah. what I want. Yeah. So, My mom has lived in the US for like 45 years and uh, when she comes back, she's a very, very personable, very smiley, you know, really wins people over and she always tells me like, you need to smile more, not like out of like a forced smile, but she's like, every time I smile here when she comes back, she's like, people are like, oh my God, you know, like the reaction to her kindness, that's just a natural thing yeah. is overwhelming and completely opens doors all the time. And that's like an important thing to remember. I think that's true everywhere, really. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I try not to make generalizations about Israelis versus other people. People are people and yeah. people have been incredibly warm and welcoming to me in the food community here. I've made a lot of friends, chefs, food writers and bloggers, people who've helped me a lot and um, taught me a lot. 
and guided me a lot and welcomed me into the fold. And it's been generally like a great experience. I mean, COVID has been a challenge. I have most of my best, best friends live in the United States. And obviously I haven't been able to see them and my family. So that's been hard. I have been able to go a couple of times, which is amazing, but I'm used to going five times a year. (laughs) Yeah, you're good with jet lag, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. So before I let you go, I just want to ask you a couple more things. First of all, of course, about Shabbat, which you're working on now, your follow-up. I mean, from the outside, that also seems like a sort of beautiful full circle thing, coming back Mm -hmm. to your first experiences of food with your family and home. And how did you end up deciding to do that? What has that experience been like for you? I mean, is it really different to do it on your own for the second time, maybe having found your voice? I think the expectations are high because Sababa was successful. So I feel, you know, I definitely feel pressure to deliver something good. I think what's been really interesting for me, um, you know, in Israel, Shabbat just means the weekend. It doesn't have, for many people, religious affiliations. You start saying Shabbat Shalom or Good Sabbath on Thursday night. The weekend starts here on Friday. So for someone who grew up with a more proscribed viewpoint on what Shabbat is, it's been interesting for me too, to sort of unwind that and untangle how I cook and entertain on weekends, like without a lot of the ritual necessarily. And what I'm trying to do with the book is to give everyone permission to love and enjoy Shabbat and to view it as a concept of rest and relaxation and downtime with your family and putting the phone away and self-care and easy food. So there's definitely a rubric behind it, but I'm trying not to make it too gimmicky. Like it's just going to be a lot of really delicious food. (laughs) I love that also though, because it's like taking your concept of cooking, which is also like we were talking about, don't have to be super exact about everything. And also, with Shabbat because whoever, whether you're Jewish or not, or secular, religious, whatever it is, the concept of finding your own way that suits your own life to take a break, especially now when we're all like attached to our phones 24 hours a day is so great and also takes a lot of the pressure off. Like it doesn't have to be this one specific formula to take time off or to find your space. It can be open and that weaves together. And everybody wants in on Shabbat. I mean, in my house growing up, like my non-Jewish friends were lining up to come over for Shabbat dinner and not just because of the food, but just because nobody was watching TV. Nobody was on the phone. Nobody was distracted. There was this sense that like, if you were at the table, then you were special and important. And like, that is something that I'm trying to bring back and to reinforce through the book. So my last two questions, and then I really will let you go to create more recipes or one of the many things that you have to do right now. What do you eat or cook when you are in a rut or have zero energy? Um, Do you have like a go-to, I have no time, no energy thing? Yeah. I usually make like a batch of chickpeas in the Instant Pot, Mm -hmm. really good Israeli Hadass chickpeas, which are the small ones that I put a lot of salt and garlic cloves and bay leaves in the chickpeas. And then inside when you're cooking them? Yep. Because the pressure cooks the salt and the flavor right into the chickpeas. That'll do me for like a few days, like when I'm busy, like the first thing I'll do is just mash some chickpeas with trina and have a little like masabacha. Then I'll take the chickpeas and I'll Like yesterday on Instagram, I did a salad with tomatoes, cucumbers, feta, chickpeas, pomegranate seeds, and just like a lemon vinaigrette. So like salad with a little bit of protein. Amazing. Then I can make chickpea fritters. You know, a lot of professional cooks are quite boring home eaters because... (laughs) Because everything's so complicated in the restaurant? Yeah, we like to stick to basics. We're eating out a lot and there's a lot of creativity and sometimes just like the food you eat for yourself. It's nice to keep it simple. So um, There's a phrase in Hebrew that the shoemaker goes uh, bare 
barefoot. Yeah. So it's like a little That's bit of that. That's true. But so tonight for dinner, I may, I marinated some chicken and um, I'm actually developing a line of spice blends with Lior Sarkaz from La Boite. Oh. So like he sent me some samples. So I'm marinating some chicken and like his beautiful red spices. And then I'll make a salad and like, that'll be like a nice light dinner. I mean, it's a cool 87 degrees right now at seven o'clock. So. <laughs> <laughs> so you need something like, yeah. well, I think Jay married very well. <laughs> Thank you. Very, very well. Thank you. So my final question that I just have to ask everyone and that I'm definitely interested with you is if you could sit down for coffee or a masabacha with your 20 year old ish self, what do you think you'd want to tell her? I would tell her that nobody is looking at you. Everyone is thinking about themselves. So think about yourself and do what you want to do because you never know when time is going to escape you. And also like people are not that focused on what you're up to. They're focused on what they're up to. So just do what you want to do and focus on it. Another thing I would say is don't assume too early that you know a lot about anything. You you might think you know a lot, but stay open, stay in a place of learning. Don't make a lot of assumptions about what you know or what you think you want to do or your direction. Like you can really steer yourself into a narrow tunnel if you think that way. So just, you know, be flexible, be nimble, travel a lot. Maybe like my own advice to myself would be just speak your mind more. Don't be so worried about offending people. I really connect to all that advice. And, and I still feel like I need to remind myself of that all the time because I'm very much, I think, in the perpetual searching mode. So I really love that. Yeah. And then I would just tell them one more thing is you're beautiful. And when you look at pictures of yourself 30 years from now, you're not going to believe how gorgeous you are. So just <laughs> enjoy it. So shut up. <laughs> and enjoy it right now. Exactly. (laughs) And that's always true too. It's a piece of advice that's true. Like no matter what age you are, it's always true retroactively. Totally. Well, Adina Sussman, thank you so much for taking the time. I am looking out for as many millions of people are for both Shabbat and the third book with Chrissy. And I guess the spices also, which I didn't even know about and all the other things you're doing. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time. And now I'm hungry. So I'm going to (laughs) go try to (laughs) figure something out. It was an honor. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on Apple Podcasts and send us your thoughts, any questions you want answered or women you want to hear from on Twitter at Nareet Ben or Instagram at Life Deconstructed Pod. Thanks as always to our super producer, Talia Golihov. I'm Nareet Ben. We'll see you next week on Life Deconstructed. <laughs>